can open your Bibles this morning to Exodus 34. Big decisions for me this afternoon. Do I use my new Yeti mug to drink a cup of coffee to stay awake? Or do I use my weighted blanket to take a nap? That's my big decisions today. I, I, I may just let them battle it out. Drink a cup of coffee in my Yeti mug under the weighted blanket and see who wins. So um, at 48, I'm pretty sure I know who wins. Uh, snooze time. So this morning, we wrap up our Advent series. Uh, and we finish, obviously, this morning with Christ uh, being born. And I want to structure this morning's sermon around the truth that Christ is the yes or the answer to every promise in the Bible. He says it's not. Oh, thank you, Tyler. It's about to show up. I can feel it. Or not. There it is. Behold, Christmas miracle. And so this morning, uh, we want to structure around how Christ is the yes or the answer to every promise of God. And so over the last several weeks, since the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we've been looking at these Old Testament pictures of Christ because he is the ultimate fulfillment of all of them. And this morning, I want to help us to understand God a little better. Now, now that is a monumental task, and I guaranteed you we'd be done by noon. So how in the world can we do that? And we're going to structure this morning then around three core promises of God to man. And hopefully this morning, this Christmas, that's a blessing to you, it's encouragement to you, and it's frankly easy for you to, to remember. Now, when we think about promises, um, I, I, I've had promises made, I've had promises broken, I, I, I've made promises, and I've broken promises myself. But I think one of the saddest moments in all of the Bible is this broken promise moment that happens at the trial of Jesus. A few hours earlier, they'd been in the Garden uh, of Gethsemane, and uh, they're on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is teaching his faithful disciples. There's only 11 that are remaining. Judas has already gone away. And he talks about the fact that everyone's going to leave him. They're going to abandon him. And so Jesus, who has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, is telling his disciples, you're going to abandon me. And Peter makes a promise. And Peter says, I will never, I, I'd rather die then be disloyal to you, Jesus. And, and so he actually claims, it's his exact words in Mark are recorded this way, even though they all fall away, I will not. You fast forward a few hours. Jesus has been arrested. Uh, you might remember at the arrest moment, Peter's the guy that grabs a sword and tries to take out one of the servants. And Jesus has to put the man's ear back on his head. Uh, Peter was a fisherman, not a soldier. His aim was off. Jesus now begins to go through these court proceedings. And so they take him in the middle of the night and he appears before the Sanhedrin and then appears before one of the high priests and then another former high priest. And, and in the courtyard, Jesus is being led away and he's actually going to begin his journey to Pilate because they, they've decided we're going to kill him, but they don't have the authority to kill him. And so they're going to want the Roman governor to kill him. And as they lead Jesus through the courtyard, there comes this ultimate moment when Peter's been sitting in there, John had an inn, and so he got Peter and himself into the courtyard at least. And sitting around the fires there, people had begun to recognize Peter. And they were asking him, aren't, aren't you one of the guys that was with Jesus? Aren't you one of the followers? And Peter has denied it. And then there comes this third moment, it's about six o'clock in the morning, 
And, and the Bible is gracious to us in the sense that it simply tells us that Peter swore in claiming, I'm not one of them. I tell you I'm not. We don't know what kind of swear it was, whether he swore against himself, I tell you on my life it's not, whether he actually used what we would think in, in modern day euphemistic language as profanity, but he's emphasizing it, and I'm definitely not one of them. As the words come out of his mouth, uh, the Bible tells us his eyes lock on Jesus, who's coming through the courtyard. Jesus sees him, and the promise that Jesus has made is now fulfilled, because Jesus had told him before the rooster would crow, you're going to deny me three times. This is the third moment, six, roughly six o'clock in the morning, and the rooster begins crowing. All of this happens in the same moment. This broken promise uh, that I'll never fall away from you. It's just devastating. Uh, it's a broken promise of a friend. It's a broken promise of a brother. They've lived together, traveled together for almost three full years. It's a broken promise of one of his core three, Peter, James, and John. It's a broken promise by the de facto leader of the disciples, Peter. It's a broken promise made in the face when Jesus had told him this would happen. So he had even forewarned him that you would do this. And Peter said, no, absolutely not. I'll, that'll never happen. There's nothing like a broken promise. Have you ever had someone break a deep promise to you? A promise that suddenly relationship is forever altered. And so when God makes promises to us, they're going to matter a great deal. One theologian studied, read carefully through the Bible, uh, found over 8,500 promises. The specific number, though, of promises that God has made to men, to humanity, in the Bible, 7,487 different promises. The word of God, his reliability, his trust factor, relies on the fulfillment of these promises. Joshua 23, 14 says that his word has never failed. God, what does he swear by to fulfill his promises? I, how, would, how would God say, um, you know, like we go into a courtyard, courtroom and you swear on the Bible or you affirm, uh, may judgment fall on me if I break my promise. What does God swear by? Hebrews chapter 6 tells us he swears by himself because he can't swear by anything greater. His character, his name, his identity is linked to these 7,000 plus promises. The promises of God defy time. And they're fulfilled in his own time, even as we're told in Galatians 4, 4, that Jesus came in the fullness of time. God's promises don't really put his integrity to the test because he cannot lie. In reality, though, they prove his holiness and his tenderness. I want you to think about God's promises that way as proofs of his holiness and his tenderness, his righteousness, because it is bound up with all of his integrity, all of his honesty, all of his truthfulness. God is true. Let every other man be a liar. And so it is his righteousness, but it's also his tenderness. Because you make promises to someone in need. Uh, you promise your child you're going to feed them. You promise a neighbor you'll bring them something. You, you promise your employer you'll fulfill your commitments. You make promises Husbands to wives, parents to children, children to parents. You make promises to someone in need. I promise I'll be back for you. And so promises show his holiness because they're bound to his integrity, his honesty, his trustworthiness, his character. 
They also reveal his tenderness because he's making these 7,487 promises to needy people, to, to people who can't fulfill things in themselves. And so in 2 Corinthians 1.20, we have this fascinating verse from the Apostle Paul who wrote, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter amen to God for his glory. Spurgeon talked about God's promises this way. God's promises are longer than life, broader than sin, deeper than the grave, and higher than the clouds. And so this morning, Christmas morning, we want to understand this in our, in our few minutes together. Christ is the living fulfillment of God's promises. And, and I'm going to just look at three. 7,400, how do we look at them? We're going to look at three. And we're going to look at three core promises God makes to God. We call them core promises that we'll see as we walk through. Three simple points this morning. Because they are repeated over and over and over again in the Bible. And you could really distill uh, how God relates to man down to these three core promises. God promises to be compassionate to us. God promises his approval or his acceptance of us. And God promises us his presence. And so Christmas, I want you to, to dwell in, to soak in, to live in the reality of his compassion to you, his approval of you, and his presence to you. A good gift. Have you ever gotten a really good gift? A good gift, a really good gift blesses somebody on their core level. <laughs> the famous short story by O. Henry, The Gift of the Magi. It's that one where you have a poor couple and the wife wants to get her husband a gift. The husband wants to give his wife a gift. Neither of them have enough money. And so she goes and she has this long, beautiful hair and her husband had a pocket watch. And so she goes and she sells her hair. Uh, so someone can make it into wigs and use it that way. And it's so beautiful and it's luxurious. And in modern day income, monetary economic value, O. Henry begins the story with her having about $6. She sells her hair for about $600. She takes that and she uses every penny to buy her husband a pocket watch chain. Several years ago, I saw a sale for a KitchenAid mixer. This is a self-serving gift for me to my wife but it's a good gift because she wanted one and I needed the money to come up with it. And so I had additional ammo. Yeah, I'm a gun guy. So I had additional ammo and I got on the penny saver or whatever it's called. And I sold my additional ammo to get the money to buy my wife a KitchenAid mixer. It's one of the best decisions I've ever made. Served me every since. This woman, she sells her hair because she knows that's what her husband would. So desperately, it goes to his core level. Well, he, meanwhile, wants to bless his wife, and so he goes and he sells his pocket watch to raise the money to buy her these ornate combs. And the, there they are on Christmas morning, her giving him a, a chain for a watch he no longer owns and him giving her combs for hair she no longer has. A core-level gift shows you understand and know this person. And so when I talk about God giving us good gifts on Christmas... The best gift he could ever give us is himself. Because what we need most is him. We live in the reality where we are well acquainted with how sinful we are. Uh, we're, we're, we're well aware that we think things we should not. We do things we ought not do. We certainly say things we wish we could take back. And we can't. We're aware of our sinfulness we're aware of our finiteness. This world is winding down. Our bodies are winding down. 
we get older and sicker and we know that one day, if God doesn't come back, we'll die and we'll have to face the judgment then. And so we're these needy people. And so God, seeing our need and our greatest need and knowing because he made us, he gives us a gift that is perfect for us and the gift of his, is himself. And so when we talk about compassion, approval, and presence, these are the things we need the most from God. We need him to be tender toward us, to be accepting of us and to be with us. And so this morning, as we work through these promises, Christ is the living fulfillment of these promises. And I want us to understand that. And so let's just tackle them one at a time. We'll, we'll go after compassion first. We'll go after these three core uh, promises, but let's go to compassion. Exodus 34, I want you to see at least the first time these promises are made to us in the Bible, each one. So in Exodus 34, verses six through seven, the Bible records it this way. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so we have displayed in this promise that God's saying, This is who I am on a core level. This is how you can think about me, relate to me. I am a compassionate God. Well, how do we understand compassion? Well, in the famous tale, Christmas Carol, uh, one of my favorite stories, regardless of the season, but certainly Christmas time, you have this moment. This is not covered in every single play or movie of Christmas Carol you've seen. It's covered in a few renditions. Uh, the George C. Scott version covers it. There's this moment when the, the, the ghost of Christmas yet to come uh, holding two children close to him. They, and, he, and he opens his robes and it reveals these two children. And one is a girl and one is a little boy. And he tells Scrooge they are man's. In other words, these are humanity. They belong to humanity. And they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. The boy is ignorance and the girl is want. He says, beware of both of them. Because in all of their harshness and in all of their suffering... Beware of the boy the most, because written on his forehead is the word doom. That's this weird kind of thing. What, what, was, what was Dickens trying to communicate here with ignorance and want, with poverty and ignorance? How does he think about it, and why is ignorance marked as the doom of humanity? Dickens was deeply passionate about uh, the orphans of his day. And so you easily think of Oliver Twist and other Dickens stories. Why was he so burdened in particular? Well, he was a compassionate man himself. But in Dickens' day, roughly 30,000 children lived on the streets in London. It was a city of about two and a half million. That means one out of every 83 people in the city of London was a homeless child under the age of 12. That's a staggering statistic. The closest we can come to that in, in the United States is in New York City. The ratio is a little bit less, but even in New York City, we judge the number of homeless children based upon public school records. And so who are children that the public schools do not have physical addresses for? Well, that means, though, is these children have access to food, to clothing, and to education. Now, they need housing. And so I'm not diminishing this at all, but in Dickens' day, 
those numbers are based upon death reports because these children had no access to education or to food or to clothing. And so as you walked around, one out of every 83 people your eyes set upon was a homeless child doing whatever they could do to try to survive on the cold city streets. Dickens was moved by this, and so he frequently included, wrote stories surrounding this, trying to raise and awaken the awareness of the people to this need. And he was continually bothered that people didn't seem to care at all. And so he exemplifies it in Scrooge. When he, Scrooge, and I quote, says this, uh, Christmas is a pure, poor excuse to pick a man's pocket every December 25th. And so when he pictures these two children, one of want, that was to show poverty. But doom is written on ignorance's head. His point was this, the death of humanity is the ignoring of the suffering. That's what he was communicating. How can you look upon need and do nothing? It actually sounds a lot like the early church. James writing to the dispersed church wrote this in James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. How would you ever say that? How would someone ever look at them and say, well, you know, I, I'm sorry you don't have enough clothes to keep you warm, and I'm sorry you don't have enough food to even eat every day, but God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Be warm and filled, go your way. The reality is this. The cattle he owns on a thousand hills is your bank account and mine. And he intends to love and care for the needy, frankly, through his children. In Dickens' day, they didn't care. They looked at these children and they passed by them. They were careful not to make eye contact and thereby acknowledge their humanity and their neediness. So what is compassion? I want you to think of compassion in this way. Compassion is seeing a need and meeting it. It's that simple. Compassion then is not based upon the worth of the person, but the neediness of the person. So I don't look upon someone in need and say, well, do they really deserve it? That's not the test. But are they in need? The first core promise God gives to us is about who he is, and it's compassion. He sees our greatest need for mercy and forgiveness, for sin and justice and safety for our oppression. If you're an oppressed person, if you've suffered at the hands of someone else, you have need. And you need a good judge, a good God, to see your need for justice and come into your need and meet it. If you have need for your sin to be dealt with and you're aware of how sinful you are and we come to this point where we acknowledge our sinfulness and how we deserve his wrath because we do, we've earned it with our sin. We need him to show us compassion. We need God to look at us and not say, well, Steve doesn't really deserve it. I already know I don't deserve it. You already know, your sinful heart already knows you can't earn his favor. And so the first core promise he makes to us is that I will come in compassion. We see this in Christ, particularly even at Christmas. 
In a strange twist of fate, God has made flesh at Christmas. And then God sends shepherds. Shepherds were some of the lowest of the low. They were so low that on the, on the uh, totem pole of cultural awareness that they weren't even permitted to give testimony in court. They were nomadic, and so they would travel around. And even those that would be attached to a city, like apparently the shepherds were at Bethlehem, where they would raise the lambs used for the Passover slaughter to come in the spring, they could not be trusted to give testimony in a court of law. They were viewed as people that would do whatever it required for themselves. And so these are the ones that God comes to, and the angels appear. And in Luke 2, 11 and 12, it's recorded, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. What are those swaddling cloths? They're strips of clean cloth you wrap tight around a baby to keep them warm because babies can't regulate their own body temperature. They don't know how yet. And so Jesus is born in acute neediness. And he comes to us in, as a baby, God pouring deity into humanity. So he's fully God and fully man. And the first things he needs is to be cleaned off and for his mom to wrap him in clean clothes, clean cloths, swaddle him up tight so that he can be warm. I tell you that because Jesus understands what it means to be needy. God could have just said, I'm going to be compassionate to your neediness, and left us wondering, but does he really get it? Jesus gets it. Jesus gets what it's like that unless someone else intervenes for you, you won't survive. And he comes in the form of a baby shouting yes to that. Jesus is the yes of every promise. And so he's the yes to the promise of compassion. Well, later in Jesus' ministry, he looks upon a crowd that's following him. And Matthew records it this way, Matthew 9, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. It's fascinating, because this very crowd he feeds, and he cares for. And it's this very crowd that within a day, all abandon him and walk away. Jesus didn't base his compassion on their worth. He based his compassion on their need. Do you come needy at Christmas? Good. Because he sees your compassion. And at Christmas, Jesus sees your need, and it's a reminder that he has come to meet your need. Have you ever gone to someone for help, and they help you, but they resent helping you the whole time? I remember going to a teacher once, and I didn't understand something. I stayed after school, and the whole time I was getting help, they were making these deep sighs and irritated eye rolls. But I had no one else to help me. This is not how God relates to us. It's Christmas. Jesus has come as a baby, and he's been born. He's come in neediness that he might communicate to you. He gets your neediness. He sees your helplessness even as he was a helpless baby. And in compassion, he comes to shepherd your soul, recognizing you that your heart is prone as mine to wander and run for the cliffs. He comes to forgive, to welcome in, to make us his own, and in his love to make us safe 
through salvation. Jesus is the yes to the promise of God's compassion. I want to remind you at Christmas, whatever your need is this morning, Jesus has come to meet it in his compassion. And the way we receive it is simply by responding to his call to come to me. And he even describes us in needy ways, right? Come to me, all you that are weary, you're exhausted and heavy laden. You're broken down under a burden. And he says, I will give you rest. And so Christmas is a reminder that Jesus sees and understands our neediness and he comes in compassion. Well, that's just one of the core promises. The second one is his approval. For that one, you can go to Numbers. Numbers chapter 6. Now, this is a verse uh, that is commonly used in churches to pray over people at a benediction or at the end of a service. And he says it this way, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The second core promise of God is his unashamed and his embarrassingly joyful acceptance of his children, his excitement over them. It's like, if you ever, some of you are pet people, good. Um, some of you are dog people, better. Now, um, and it's like you come home and here's this dog and it runs to meet you. When I, when I was an uh, older teenager, we had a dog and, and for whatever reason, I was her favorite. And when I come home, she'd come running through the house. If I opened the door and I just said her name, she, no matter where she's in the house, she ran to greet me, would jump right up into my arms. Um, and so there was no shame. In this, in this dog, right? Um, I'm, a, I'm a, one of those, I'm now at the age where I, I don't have grandkids, clearly. Way too young for that. Um, my kids are solid 20 years from being even allowed to date. That's fine. So, um, but I'd like to show off pictures of my kids. And so this past year for Father's Day, uh, my, my, my wife got me a keychain and it has their pictures printed in it and I can slide them out. And so, and so I like to show people pictures of my kids because they're my kids. I, I'm unashamed that they're mine. I remember being in the hospital uh, at Richland when my daughter was born at Thanksgiving week and I had to go see her in the nursery and, and they were there. And I remember telling other people, hey, that's mine. That one's mine. That one right there. Not that ugly one, two babies over. That's mine right there, right? I'm unashamedly accepting and joyous. Do you ever feel... Like, God, you just squeaked in. Like, I was like, I made this whole system that if you repent of your sin and you believe in me, you'll be saved. And then you showed up and he was like, I guess I got to fulfill what I promised. Okay, didn't really want to count on Steve coming, but okay, you're in. Do you ever feel like at the, at the marriage supper of the lamb, you're probably going to be at the kid's card table in the next room? This is not the way God accepts us. He's unashamed of you. He's embarrassingly joyous over you. There'll come this moment, if you are his, if you are his, and I want you to think here in a Holy Spirit imagination way, there will come a moment in glory when all time is gone and he will look out and he will not address you as a crowd, but he will address you personally. And he will say, enter in. My good and faithful servant, come into my rest and dwell with me.
the acceptance of God is just mind-boggling because we know we don't deserve it. We're almost embarrassed about it. When I was a boy and I would go to visit my grandparents at their church, I would get hauled around to all their friends. This is Jerry's son, Stephen. And I would hear all about which of my uncles they thought I looked like. And they would talk about how I was playing Little League as a boy and then playing soccer and where I was at in school and what I was doing and how I was doing. And, and I thought that stopped when you got older. And then there came a moment in my mid-20s. I moved away from Baltimore for several years. Then I came back to Baltimore and I was invited to preach at our church. And so I got up to preach and I didn't know this, but before I got up to preach, my dad had called and invited all my aunts and uncles and my grandparents to come to hear me preach. So I get up to preach. It's like this whole emotional moment, right? Because I look out and there's like Harold and Bebe and Hardy and Nancy and my grandma. And it just was this overwhelming moment. And the funniest thing to me of all was after the service, my grandmother Maxine going around to all the people in my home church telling them that she was my grandchild. Like they already knew she didn't care. She just wanted them to know I was hers. Unashamedly, embarrassingly joyous in their acceptance. This is God toward us. To understand rejection, I think it's something we've all tasted. A Bible teacher recently, I was reading an article she wrote, she talked about she was preparing a midweek lesson for this small group of girls that she was teaching, and, uh, and this lesson was going to be all about lust. And so she was anticipating questions that these girls were going to ask. And so she was anticipating questions about how far physically should we go? And is it okay to kiss a boy? And um, even modern day issues like pornography and how do I wrestle through this? And what do I do with these ladies' magazines that, that have airbrushed images? And I don't feel like I match the image of beauty. And she was thinking all about this. And then she got to the lesson. She was prepared for all these questions with answers. And yet the questions she got were things like this. Will someone love me? How can I long for God's love more than a boy's love? What does it mean that God is my father in light of how my earthly father has treated me? All their questions went to rejection on a very deep and personal level. I think everyone in this room, I, I know it, everyone here has experienced rejection on some level, somewhere at some time, whether it's for a job, you applied for and you rejected an award you should have gotten or relational rejection. Some rejections are deeper than others. Uh, one girl I took out one time, she lived in Delaware, drove all the way from Baltimore to Delaware and um, I'll never forget it because I, I remember calling her to ask her out in his old landline days, right? And so I kept calling, I kept picking up the phone and I'd hang it up, pick it up, hang it up. I waited until Noah was in the house, I thought, and I was too scared to ask this girl out. And then I hear laughter in the back bedroom and my kids would know this. My dad laughed like this. <laughs> when he was making fun of you. And I hear this laugh in the background. And my dad's just like, just ask her out. The worst she can say is no. Laughing. I mean, I asked her out. I took her out, drove all the way to Delaware, took her some flowers, took her out to a nice dinner. We hung out at a coffee shop. I took her back home. And I said, hey, um, you know, I'd like to take you on a second date. She said, well, you can come anytime and take me out. We had so much fun, but I'm not interested in dating you. That's great then, because I wasn't interested in driving an hour and a half to take a girl out that wasn't interested in dating me, right? So it was a good fit. But my heart, at the, all the way back, I'm like, why? What did I do wrong? Did I bring the wrong flowers to the wrong place? Did I say the wrong things? Am I just not good looking enough, right? Like, what's, there's so many, like the lengthy list to reject. But it wasn't deeply wounding, right? 
But rejection, when someone rejects you for who you are, it's not surface. It can just, frankly, blow your mind. The hurt is deep. And I think that actually gets to the core of why so often we struggle with this concept of how much God loves us and accepts us. Because we know the things about us that others should reject us for. We know our internal ugliness. And so it terrifies us that somehow it would be revealed. Jesus, Jesus knew exactly what it's like to be rejected. He tasted rejection before he ever taught us about his acceptance. In John 1, 9 through 11, it's recorded for us this way, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This is seen first and foremost at his very birth. When the wise men tell King Herod they've come seeking the king, Herod plays along, only to grow enraged later. Matthew 2 records the stunning moment. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. We call this the slaughter of the innocents. It was actually to fulfill a promise from Jeremiah. Matthew goes on. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. A symposium was held a number of years ago in the Holy Land, a gathering of psychotherapists, psychologists, mental health counselors, and they actually were doing a study on Herod because Herod actually had a cyclical cycle where people would come to him and say, so-and-so wants to be the king, so-and-so is going to become the king. He would become deeply enraged and depressed and kill them and then feel great and usually reward people, and then it would happen again. This slaughter of the innocents is not recorded anywhere in history. There is one slaughter that is recorded for us that occurs in AD 4 by Herod. And he killed his own son, who was two years of age at the time. So the Bible, interestingly enough, focuses on the death of all the innocents. History ignores the death of the children in Bethlehem and focuses only on the murder of his own son. It's like Herod knew the king was supposed to be born in Bethlehem, but let me kill my own son along with it just in case he's the one. None of those deaths occur, though, apart from the identity of Jesus. They're killed because of who he is, and it's an attempt to kill him. Later, Jesus' own brothers reject him. His own brothers are aware that people want to kill him in Jerusalem, and his physical brothers say, why don't you go down to Jerusalem? His friends abandon him. The crowds who praise him on Palm Sunday are screaming for his crucifixion by, by Passover. The people ultimately reject him and kill him. He knows what it's like to be rejected, not because of who he is on the surface, but Jesus is rejected because of the core of his identity. Jesus understands rejection. He knows what it's like to suffer through pain, to live in a land filled with pain. And so how can we understand his acceptance? We live in a world that accepts the beautiful things, the strong things, the courageous, the talented, and the capable. Our culture airbrushes pictures so that they look like an unrealistic ideal. Our culture celebrates surface. Our culture is terrified of rejection. 
It builds unrealistic expectations that no one can truly live up to. At our core, at our core, we don't feel good enough, smart enough, or pretty enough to be accepted. And into this, God makes this glorious promise of looking on his children with wild acceptance, with deep love and approval. How? It can only be through Christ. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, come to me who all are doing a good job living your life. He doesn't say, come to me who are holy and righteous. He doesn't say, come to me, all of you who have it together. I need more models in my kingdom. That's not who he's calling. He's calling the broken ones, the ones who feel rejected. Jesus was rejected so we can know full acceptance. I like how Adrian Rogers put it. Faith is our acceptance of God's acceptance of us. It's the belief that when God promises us, if you will turn from your sin and believe in me, and I'll save you, and I'll make you my son and my daughter forever. God has promised us compassion, and he's promised us acceptance. But then lastly, we find in Deuteronomy 31, the third core promise of God, and it's his presence. There is no promise of God that is repeated more in the Bible than this promise. Deuteronomy 31.6 says this, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. You know, throughout the Old Testament, we have a number of appearances of God. We, we both have appearances of God the Father, even as he goes by uh, the prophet, and, and you have the wind afterward, and you have flame of fire, you have a brush that, that burns but is never consumed. You have pre-incarnate Christ showing up. The angel of the Lord shows up to Abraham. The angel of the Lord is actually the angel that goes through uh, Egypt to kill the firstborn children. And so you have, the, you have Jesus Christ pre-incarnate showing up in the fiery furnace with, Ab, with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But most of the times that God shows up in the Old Testament are terrifying. Uh, chief among them is there's this moment when the children of Israel are traveling through the wilderness and God shows up on the mountain and, and there's cloud and lightning and, and here's the presence of God. And the children of Israel are told this, don't even come close to touching the mountain or I'll kill you. Now, that's a fascinating thing because I, I don't do lots of hiking, but anytime I've hiked or even been to Colorado and seen uh, 14,000 foot mountains, you have a hard time figuring out where the base of the mountain is. Like there's not a sign that says base of the mountain. So I don't know about you, but if God tells me, don't come near, don't touch the mountain or I'm going to kill you, me and that mountain are going to be far apart, right? Like I don't, I don't want to creep up close and die. And it really was God communicating this, how far away we are from each other. This is our separation. There's even this moment when the Ark of the Covenant, representing the presence of God, is being carried back, and they're carrying it wrongly. It's on a, on a cart, and it gets unstable. And a servant of God reaches out to steady the Ark, and God strikes him dead. How dare you touch the holiness of God? A high priest would go in once a year into the Holy of Holies, Yom Kippur, to offer uh, the, the atonement for everyone and sprinkle blood on the Ark. But if he walked in unclean, he'd be killed in an instant. When God, though, there comes this moment later in the Old Testament when God's people turn from him and worship idols. And there was this whole cyclical pattern where they'd worship idols, they'd suffer consequences, they'd come back to God. Worship idols, suffer consequences, come back to God. It goes on and on. And God kept warning the people, if you keep doing this, then I'm going to send you into captivity. You keep doing this, I'm going to send you into captivity. And there comes this moment at the temple 
Solomon's temple where the God's presence, the Shekinah glory, which is described like a mist, a fog, which rested on the temple in the Holy of Holies and in the temple complex itself. And it gave people a visual understanding of God is with us. There comes this moment when the glory departs. Ezekiel describes it. And as Ezekiel describes it, it's the way you and I leave loved ones that we really care about. I'll never, I'll never forget uh, and she's here this morning, my mother-in-law, when I came to, to get her and brought her when her first grandson, Ian, was born. And she stayed with us a few weeks. It was a wonderful moment, and, um, it, and, and it's just a joyous moment. But then there came the di- day when she had to leave. Grandmas don't leave grandbabies easy. That, that's a good grandma, right? That, that's, that's, that's a good grandma. And, and so... And, and so you, you're constantly one more hug, one more hold, one more kiss. Those poor babies' cheeks are like chapped from kisses, right? It's like, because you love that, but you don't leave them easily. Um, I, I've tasted this as a dad. I, I don't leave my family easily. Ezekiel, when he describes God's presence leaving, it's fascinating because it talks about he looked in the, in the God's presence, which kind of glory was, at the, was in the holy place, and then it was at the doorway. And then it's like a whole other chapter later, he's at an outer gate. And then a whole couple chapters later, the Shekinah glory has moved from the outer gate to the mountain overlooking Jerusalem. It's like he's leaving, but he doesn't want to go. Because at the very core level, God is a God who never leaves you, right? And you have this moment, though, where this glory seems to be departing, and God's glory ultimately departs because the children of Israel have given themselves to the worst kind of idolatrous worship imaginable. They had actually already painted. They t- this is hard to fathom. The inside of Solomon's temple was covered in gold. Gold. So you would go in and you just imagine this glow, right? They had actually painted over it with just unbelievably immoral and godless images. God's presence had stayed as long as possible, demonstrating his faithfulness, but now he departs. And when the glory departs, and it's called Ichabod, the glory has departed, is literally what the Hebrew word means. Ichabod upon it. So so to proclaim Ichabod is to say God's no longer there. It's 600 years of silence from that point forward. 600 years with no abiding presence of God for the people to know. Even when they come out of captivity and they rebuild the temple, Herod's temple to replace Solomon's temple because it's been destroyed by the Babylonians, God's presence doesn't return. It's 600 years of darkness. The presence of God is terrifying to the wicked like a mountain you dare not touch. And it's supposed to be comforting to the righteous. To live without the presence of God then is this nightmarish existence. That's why hell itself is to live without the presence of God. There's nothing greater for anyone to know than his abiding presence. And so the first temple is is Solomon's, and it's this amazing complex. But then they come and they build Herod's temple, and you have this strange verse in Haggai, where it says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. That's a strange verse. It comes, it's strange because it comes after the captivity. They've been in Babylonian captivity. They come back and they rebuild the temple. And it, looked, it didn't look like Solomon's temple, but it looked like that. It would be like tearing down the White House and replacing it with a beat-up, rusty pop-up camper. It was ugly and cold. 
It didn't have the gold or the jewels. The gold fixtures and, and everything was gone. And so the people, there were still some people that were children when they were led into captivity out of Jerusalem. Now they're older folks. They're back in Jerusalem. There were still some people left behind in Jerusalem that remembered the glory of Solomon's temple. And they're standing there, and Herod's supposed to be the new temple. Uh, it ultimately comes called Herod's temple because he did a remodeling campaign. It still didn't look great. This is the temple that Jesus goes to. And so they're looking at it, and they're crying because they're like, I remember the White House, and we got pop-up camper. The side's falling off, and it's ugly. And this promise comes to them. The latter glory of this house should be greater than the former. How can that be? How can the glory of Herod's temple, with the lack of the Shekinah glory presence of God, with its ugliness, its baseness, its plainness, how can it be more beautiful? Because there came this moment, 600 years, after the Shekinah glory departed, there came this moment 600 years after the, the mist of God's presence had left the Temple Mount. There came this moment when this teenage girl and her husband came walking into the temple complex holding a little baby. The presence had returned. And so what God was promising in Haggai was this, that that when I come, when Jesus comes, when Jesus is born and Jesus comes, he is far greater than a mist, a cloud that just seems to be there because then you will see my glory face to face. And into this temple, Jesus is named and he's dedicated. And there's this older man and it's like this ultimate fulfillment of the older folks in Haggai crying over the ugliness of the temple and not fully understanding. And then you come full circle because you have this very old man, Simeon, and he's in the temple mount and he's just sitting there waiting. And it's almost like he's waiting for God to fulfill his, fulfill his promise. And as Joseph and Mary walk in with this little baby, Simeon knows. And he takes this little baby in his arms. And he says, now I can die. I can die now because God has fulfilled his promises and here he is. The glory of God is seen in Jesus, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To know Jesus is to know the presence of the glory of God. It's to experience his promise that he would never leave us or forsake us. Do you know what Christmas is? Christmas is a celebration of the presence of God made flesh and dwelling among us. Do you know Jesus? If you do, then you know the compassion, the acceptance, and the presence of God. And if you don't, I invite you to come to know the acceptance, the compassion, and the presence of God in salvation. Christmas. Christmas is a celebration of who God is on a core level. And he has given us the greatest gift that could ever be. He's given us himself in Christ. And so this Christmas, may you celebrate that truth.